Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just joining us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do and how you can get involved on officehours.global. There you can become a producer for the show by submitting the questions that our panel will focus on and answer. Um, Saturday is our education uh, day. So our second hour of our, uh, of our Saturday program will be focused on an education topic. Today, John Snyder is going to prevent for us effective assessments. So stick around for our second hour and you can put in the second hour questions with the appropriate McConnell tag right now. So feel free to take advantage of general education, education questions uh, for the beginning of our show. Dave, what do we have? We're starting off with Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. How did the 12 volt and 24 volt standard come to be in the film industry for powering electronics? It's a good question, um, Alexander. Um, some of the battery powered uh, battery operated systems are uh, their voltage standards are dependent on the number of cells that they use uh, different cell uh, batteries uh, evoke different uh, voltage levels as uh, typically the cells within a battery a battery is uh, simply a collection of cells and when the more cells that you add in series will increase that voltage the optimal um, uh, amount of voltage meaning uh, within a safety parameter uh, oftentimes low voltage um, devices in lighting are there for to provide safety it doesn't uh, have a significant amount of voltage to um, to risk injury but is is high enough to carry enough uh, current without the voltage drop being an issue um, the lower the voltage according to ohm's law the trouble more trouble you get when you try to run things larger distances particularly whenever the amperages increase so Oftentimes, um, the engineering standards is partially uh, what's available and partially a, a compromise. The 12 volt standard, I can't speak to the film industry, but what made the 12 volt industry very popular in general and having commodity parts is the automotive uh, industry and a lot of other um, suppliers to where that particular voltage, um, regulators, uh, battery supplies and such, were available uh, to accommodate that particular voltage. And so, you know, commodity part pricings uh, oftentimes uh, determine uh, determined, uh, things. Oftentimes they have a lot of uh, inertia too. Um, some of the impetus uh, to modern uh, uh, car uh, manufacturing is to increase the voltage to 48 volts or uh, thereabouts and there, therefore be able to use lower, uh, uh, less copper in running the wires. Uh, in order to um, alleviate the voltage drop, you have to either increase the voltage or you have to increase the copper size of your conductors or aluminum or whatever conductor size. So um, 12 volts tends to be a commodity there. Uh, 24 being a multiple of 12, having two 12 volt batteries in parallel. So I can't speak to the historicity of that in the particular industry as far as uh, filming, but um, chances are, um, you know, being able to change that standard onto something else means that you'll need some type of uh, bespoke uh, power adapter in order to make changes. And so things that run natively on that 12 volt standard um, is the case, which is why the, uh, the old cigarette lighters, the 12 volt adapters were, were always uh, something that ran off of that 12 volt standard. 
large enough, um, but not too large as far as uh, you know, as far as safety concerns. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Any thoughts on the new wireless Go to Beta firmware version two point four point five released a few days ago? It seems to have this ability to save web files and start and stop recordings, etc. How does it stack up vis-a-vis similar units? Samuel, are you able to uh, check that out? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the uh, the new uh, uh, firmware update allows you to record uh, directly to the uh, transmitter with a press of a button instead of using the app like before. You can also uh, plug it directly into the computer and uh, transfer the files like you would do on a flash drive without using their app. Uh, and uh, the the main competition to this microphone is the, the DJI mic, which has, has these features from before. And since Rode has been a industry standard uh, for YouTuber and low-end uh, wireless microphones, then this is a is uh, important for them to get these features. Yeah, appreciate that. I know um, having the go-to, I haven't uh, upgraded my firmware yet, but I'm happy to note that you don't have to um, one by one. Are you able to do more than more than one, Samuel, or is it still the one by one import from the uh, the go-tos onto the computer? Well, I, I I don't I haven't tested it myself, but I don't believe that you can. Uh, you, you you record to each transmitter separately as a backup that you can use later. Okay, appreciate that. Yeah, that should be interesting. I'll have to have to check that out myself. Let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from Steve Yuroff in Madison, Wisconsin. Anyone else experiencing odd behaviors with Stream Deck software version 6.2.0? I'm fighting with set audio device functions that won't stay linked to my chosen input or output device. He has a demo link there. Okay, and I I did look up the demo link, and it shows the uh, the output there. So this is the Stream Deck um, configuration, and he's setting his device to which direction. And it looks like it's changing is, is the issue he's having there. Now, we didn't get anyone raise their hand on the panel, but perhaps by putting on the show, you may get a uh, Discord message later, uh, Steve, with someone that may have had the same problem as you or may have uh, uh, found a solution. So hopefully that, uh, hopefully that helps. Um, I've not seen it myself. I will say that um, sometimes a uh, reinstall of an older um, firmware version um, has helped whenever we had some issues with um, controlling OBS. Uh, John, do you have a thought? Not specifically about the Stream Deck thing, but it just makes me think of a, a general problem I have where I, I typically don't update my software unless I have a feature I want in the new version. But there's so much in the world now that just kind of pushes you to always be updated. And I think it's mostly for security concerns. It becomes a big problem in things like this, where it's like, did you need version 6.2 or would 6.1 have been fine? I just checked. I'm on 6.1 on my stream deck and I don't have any issues at all. Albeit, I don't use it very advanced, but 
I, I constantly come against that with my phone bugging me to update stuff, my Mac bugging me to update stuff, and uh, then I get problems. Yeah, some uh, some signage uh, is more problematic than others whenever they have a little bouncing thing or a little irritating. Um, sometimes they'll have a little icon, little counter thing that tells you, you know, you've got to update. Yeah, you have to update. Well, I'm still on Monterey. So anyway, let's go to our next question. Our next one comes from Alex Lindsay in Novato, California. I asked ChatGPT to explain spaceflight with a Lexile score of 1,400, and it produced a solid explanation of spaceflight with many large words. He put it in the general education in Discord. What does the panel think of using AI to customize student learning? Go ahead, Aaron. I think this is a phenomenal way for teachers to be able to take an interesting article that they find, put it into chat GPT and say, put this at a lower Lexile level. Because there are so many articles that I see from fourth, fifth, sixth grade texts that I would love to give my students and only about four of them could maybe read it, but not for comprehension, but just read the words. So if I could knock it down just a bit for them to be able to understand it, but still get the higher word, the bigger words with the higher and better vocabulary. I think it's fantastic. Um, I know I've used it a couple of times for that particular reason, um, because in a classroom, there's no one group of students that hits all the reading levels perfectly at the same time. So you do have to differentiate for your whole class. So I feel like this is such a great tool for teachers to use. And Eric, can you uh, describe for our viewers and for me what a Lexile score is? So a Lexile score is the difficulty of the words that are in a book or a text. So I would love to say I know how it is scored, <laughs> but there is someone that has really gone into it and they can, and they have leveled, I'm pretty sure, pretty much every book um, that's been around recently and incredibly far back as well. And it allows for teachers to look at what the students are able to handle vocabulary-wise, comprehension-wise, and fluency-wise. Because if students can't read as quickly, then they're not going to comprehend what they're reading because their reading will be choppy. So every book is designated a number and students fall between a certain range. So teachers will know what's appropriate to give their students. Okay, thank you very much. I I did look up the uh, little score idea of things, and it appears that, uh, yeah, uh, that is me using different. Okay, so yeah, so that gives me an idea about what we uh, what we move things to. Go ahead, Harshid. Yeah, so <clears throat> recently with the Google I.O., they obviously showed off their doings. And uh, I pulled up, I have a site, which if you go to g.co slash labs, you could sign up for some of these. And uh, one of them that stuck out was called Tailwinds. It's like a notebook where you're putting in information. So if uh, students in any age are using AI to maybe take better notes or have information readily available, um, even some of these harder words could be more interactive of explaining what do these words mean because you're almost speaking with the AI at that point, right? And to add to that, uh, music is another big thing. I know, Alex, you and your daughter play with the uh, thumb drum kind of thing from Zimbabwe. And uh, with that, 
maybe to learn music through AI could be a thing. So I saw another thing on that same website. It's uh, Music LM. And uh, you're basically using uh, music models or uh, AI models to help create music. So if, to make things more creative and to keep attention spans of children um, and then even adults for that matter, uh, I think a lot of these AI methods are definitely a helper. But we just got to remember that we utilize them often. Uh, the assistants like the S lady and the A lady and the A uh, the a person they're all similar they do what exactly we ask them to do but this is just kind of giving you one step forward with ai uh, dr clark my, ta my take on ai in education is that um we need to uh, encourage and support teachers to play around with ai i think there's a lot of mixed messages out there about half the articles I've read are scare articles about AI taking your job and um, ruining your laundry. And and the other half are uh, uh, utopian ideas about how wonderful life will be when we don't have to write first drafts anymore. Uh, but I think that the, what makes the real difference is actual teachers playing with AI and seeing what their imaginations and, and their challenging spots in, in their teaching, ways of streamlining the things that they are already doing or customizing, personalizing, uh, adapting learning for students who are all different from one another, um, but they're going to be able to see possibilities for their own local situation, if they uh, are encouraged and supported to quote unquote, play around with chat GPT, for example. So, so I think that's, that's where the, the opportunity lies. It's almost like uh, another theme or um, mission for education hour, for example, could we think about uh, making this the place that people come with their questions and their success stories and their small victories about how they've begun to integrate AI into their teaching lives. And of course, uh, children are even more creative and courageous than adult teachers are. So once we, once the teachers get comfortable with AI uh, and figure out boundaries and possibilities and ways of framing uh, questions or invitations to AI to, to do things, then let's turn the middle schoolers loose. And they're going to come up with 99 more ideas than uh, people my age would. So that's my my take. It's it's got a wonderful potential, but it also has the risk of reliving the history of the 1980s when there was a computer in every classroom, but it was in a closet because <clears throat> nobody knew how to do it, and we were afraid of being embarrassed because we didn't know how to how to make uh, good use of it. There was a lot of excited talk about how the Apple IIe was going to 
change the world, and it probably did, uh, but it it wasn't uh, early adopted and and carefully uh, rolled out in in the schools, at least in in Michigan where I was at the time. Go ahead, John. I, b- I believe students want to learn, and they want to use tools that help them learn. And um, I think when we see things like Chegg.com, which was a social platform for tutoring for students, their results were disastrous this last quarter because their usage just hit a sharp decline uh, as soon as OpenAI came out with ChatGPT. And it, there's almost perfectly correlated the rise of ChatGPT with the shrinking of Chegg.com. And so you see students who are finding ways to solve their problem in intuitive ways like ChatGPT and ignoring the ways that are prescribed like Chegg.com. And I think that's the challenge is how do we create something for students that is easy for them to use and natural for them to use and encourage them to use it. And I think the future of learning is really going to be, and the future of AI is that personalization layer where right now we're seeing the platform more shake out, excuse me, where there will be a few large models, I think, going forward that other people build on top of. And ignoring the ethical or the privacy concerns for just a moment, imagine a world where your student tutoring system had a profile for each student in your class, and it knew their reading score, it knew their math score, it knew how to customize the reading. So all the students are reading the same material at different levels based on what that person needs. And it could push each student to continue to grow without needing as much intervention from the teacher. I think those are the kinds of platforms that could make a huge difference in the future uh, if we're willing to grow them, embrace them, and also make sure that we're not just trusting them 100%. Aaron. Just to jump off what you said, John, I thought that was a, you kind of sparked something. You made us think that teachers a lot are struggling lately with kids not wanting to read, at least at my my age group, because the books they want to read are too difficult. The books that are too easy for them, they have no interest in. So if I, if they could, more than me, if they could take the subject matter they want to learn about and say, find text based on this book at a lower lexile level. Obviously, I would help them with that vocab, but I think they could really enjoy reading again because then things would be at their level, but it would be something that they're actually interested in. Oh, fascinating. And maybe a question for the um, educators, do you see the AI working on the teacher's side as far as assessing what the needs, the abilities, and the interests of your students are? Uh, maybe taking polls of what they've submitted or maybe a um, some type of summary or aggregation of their compiled works? Do you think that's something that might be useful? Uh, go ahead, John. Yeah, it absolutely will. And I have a later question about uh, Khan Academy's new bot that does some of this, but, and I don't want to step too much into the second hour's hour, but I do think that um, artificial intelligence will be a really valuable tool because right now, a lot of the way teachers are grading and assigning work is to make it easy for the teacher to grade it. And um, because you don't want to spend all day. I know my professors didn't read my papers and they had me stick to strict limits. And I always went to the end of the limit. Um, I didn't realize that they had to read 50, 100, several hundred pages each 
each day. Um, and so they tell you, you have to follow this structure because I'm too lazy to read it. But again, if you have a tool that's an assistant for the professor, where they can use that to help um, identify trends, patterns, and maybe surface certain parts of the paper to the professor, it can help aid in that grading um, without necessarily uh, lowering the standard of the grading. Got Dr. Clark? I want to propose that we educators start calling uh, artificial into AI assistive intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. It focuses on the possibilities that you've got a, a free, intelligent, uh, tireless assistant ready to help you do the things that um, previously you had to do on your own. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's without having to get into our next questions that are dealing with that topic. I think we did had a pretty good run at this one. And thank you, Alex, for submitting the question. Just a reminder that uh, we have a very competent group of educators as well as general uh, technology practitioners. So it's a good time to submit your questions for the first hour and also for our second hour topic. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC. Has anyone looked at the Opal C1 4K webcam? They claim it's the first webcam to offer DSLR image quality. What do we think about the sensor and 78-degree field of view? And he's got a link there. Go ahead, Samuel. Well, I definitely will not do uh, DSLR video quality. It's uh, regarding the, sh the depth of field because it's only a half-inch sensor. Uh, it's probably a good camera, but it's uh, it's after... According to my calculations, it's about 17 millimeters field of view, so it's quite wide. It's not too, not too different from the InstaLink uh, 360. Yeah, I think the uh, DSLR uh, descriptions are maybe a bit of a, uh, you know, sort of like the slap with AI. It's a bit, a bit of a subjective thing. I don't know about its dynamic range or other aspects, but certainly what people typically think about when they think of DSLR is that shallow depth of field. So the physics uh, is not in favor of it. I had a quick look at um, the C1 Opal there and the price point with it, it might be competitive depending on what you're looking for. You won't get the PTZ capability of the, um, of some of our, uh, our favorite cameras from, uh, I'm forgetting the one there. Uh, and, you know, you won't have quite the, um, probably a little better than the, the Brio, but that one could be had for maybe a little better of a price. So um, I think it's a tough market as far as its pricing and what they're, uh, what they're talking about, uh, what, they're, what they're positioning for the other uh, devices that are on that market. Let's go to our next question. Our next one's from Alex Lindsay in Novato, California. How important is it to focus on the core aspects of school, reading, writing, arithmetic, versus many other subjects schools could do and cover? Go ahead, Aaron. It's just about how you balance all of those. You can still focus on reading, writing, and math, but put it into science and social studies concepts. Um, 
I'm actually going to be starting a unit incorporating Pokemon into all aspects of my teaching the last like two weeks of school where students are going to design their own Pokemon. So that's art related. They're going to read about the different biomes they could live in. So it's reading and science. Math will be the measuring the heights and the weights, going back to the science thing about making, um, figuring out what type they are, you know, fire, water, rock. I'm not a big Pokemon person, but my students are, so I'm running with it. Um, but it's it's just the concept of tying in the reading, writing, and math to what you want to teach. So in science, it doesn't just have to be science. It can be math too. I did a lesson about two weeks ago about, um, we were talking about fossils and dinosaurs. And the question I gave them was, could you outrun a dinosaur? So we gave them measurements of smaller dinosaurs that were their size. Like, I'm not going to make them run up against a T-Rex. Like, not going to happen. But the smaller things, like velociraptors. And we figured out how long of a stride the velociraptor would have using measurements. So then I marked out using the measurements how far that velociraptor would have gone in eight steps, eight running steps. And then all of my students took eight running steps to see if they could outrun the velociraptor. So they used math, they used science. And if you really wanted to map it out with social studies, you could. But there's ways to pull in everything if you're just creative creative enough to pull them all together effectively. Fantastic. Dinosaurs and Pokemon. I think I would appreciate your class, uh, Aaron. And it, the question just made me think about... Um, when working out, uh, there are compound movements and there's isolated movements, right? So people will take one bicep curl, right? Or they'll do a whole thing where they're picking up a box, which uses all the compound movements involved. And it seems to me that your approach uh, tends to be that compound movements where you're using all of the uh, constituent parts in it and as they're relevant for, uh, for an overarching goal. Go ahead, Chris. I wanted to go back to a theme that we've pushed many times on off, on Education Hour, which is um, project-based learning. And instead of putting the the skills of separate for, of reading, writing, and arithmetic, for example, first, that's a, that's a kind of a, a Lego model of schooling where you you provide the elements, and then eventually you you get to uh, play with them, put them together, put the uh, Lego blocks together. Instead, I think it makes sense to start with project-based learning at the kindergarten level. And and quite naturally, we'll want to, I mean, those doing projects, whether they're group projects or individual projects, uh, will need help with reading and writing and and arithmetic, um, just like the example of the Velociraptor. Um, they're integrated projects, but the, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, I think it's a mistake. We've been making a mistake because they're rooted in an illiterate society 150 years ago when the majority of the people in North America were uh, immigrants and not literate. And there was a small minority who were the, the landowners and the, those who had the vote and 
and they um, they ran the show, and then um, then we became a society that required um, a more educated workforce, not highly educated, but um, not particularly critical, but competent in in the basics, the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that's that's how the schools got uh, their curriculum organized. That's what it meant to become a uh, a good potential employee. And and we we are living the uh, consequences of overemphasis on on those uh, compliance oriented and task oriented skills. Instead, I think. As as uh, our previous example showed, um, that what we really need are uh, creative thinkers and people who can work together in teams and draw on uh, resources as they need them. So instead of sort of spending eight years or twelve years mustering the resources to then go do something with your life. Uh, let's start doing something with your life in preschool and continue that process in a in an upward spiral and reading and writing and arithmetic and many other things that are harder to measure will be drawn into the process of creating better and better projects, projects that grow from the creativity and imagination and and teamwork of the people involved. Yeah, John. First of all, I'm a little disappointed because I thought I was going to finally have the office hours day that I could ask my Pokemon questions, but I guess Aaron's not that much of an expert. Uh, but I, I have a question for you, Aaron, and that's when you're planning your school year, how much are you focusing on those isolated exercises? Like Josh was saying, where you're like, okay, this is a math lesson. This is a reading lesson. And how much are you, and how do you weigh, like when you're pulling those things into things like social studies? So a lot of the times it is where, based on our curriculum maps, we're supposed to be doing more isolated th things that every day is a specific math lesson. So I try to make sure my students at least have background knowledge on it enough so that at least 25 to 30% of my class understands it very, very well so that I could do a project then. So really, I would say maybe it's like a week of isolated, and then the more culminating activities can start to, to form then. So I try to pull in as much as I can so that we can get as much done as possible because yes, we've been in school for 155 days, but there are so many things that I'm like trying to squish in before the math MCAS on Tuesday, which I know we'll talk about in the next hour, but it, it's trying to jam as much in as possible. So it's better for teachers to put in as many things as they can to combine them. So as many things that you can combine into science and writing, you're getting the better bang for your buck. Go ahead, Harshid. Yeah, so with reading, writing, and arithmetic, they're always a constant. And with that constant, uh, is for any individual. So I've known people that have developed, let's say, math braille 
to make it better for blind individuals to learn the math and to learn the concepts of what you're trying to be um, calculate. And uh, with the reading component and the writing component, uh, we always have spoken about uh, strunken, something, I can't think of the word, but strunken writing and other forms of writing and to be effective in either the way you're persuading people in your uh, uh, comp one paper or comp two, it doesn't make a difference, right? Or a research paper where, hey, I found this product and these are the elements that I found and you could find this in this layout. So with the information that is given to people, yes, that we do need to focus on those cores, but we're, I think, transforming into more of a uh, computing world. So having children learn computer science at a young age, for example, uh, such as having them program off of a, uh, uh, I can't think of the name, but uh, uh, the, the little computer, um, the pies, uh, I can't think of the other name of it. But when you program those, uh, they're learning different concepts about how they work. But then we also have spoke about project-based learning. So when kids go into different groups and like Roblox and they're interacting with other kids, even if it is virtually, uh, they're learning different concepts there. So we perhaps might need to focus on how to uh, utilize their um, attention span at that point and maybe focus on how do we take the same concepts that we learned with reading, writing, and how do we even translate it to uh, be available for all people as far as accessibility is concerned, but then how to take that same concept and just reissue it into a different uh, sandwich, right? Everybody loves your grilled cheese sandwich, but maybe you might want to sub now because it's time to change and the information is going to be quite the same, but how do we reach their mind? Because we want our children to be smarter than us at the end of the day and to change the world. So that's some ways. Yeah, thank you. Fair enough. Uh, was it Raspberry Pi? Uh, Raspberry Pi, yeah. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. Yes, and I wanted to put a footnote on. Uh, Hershid was referring to William Strunk Jr. and E.B. White's uh, The Elements of Style, which is uh, a style guide for people who write. And I just thought I'd help out our audience if they Thank were wondering you. what he was referring yes. to. <laughs> Thank you for you both. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, and also on the panel today. Should I use more than one outlet for my home studio if all of the outlets are on the same home circuit, and why? Go ahead, Dave. I'm going to help you out here a little bit. There's math involved. Um, uh, a 15-amp circuit usually carries about 1,500 watts if you're at a 110 uh, level. And uh, when I was doing my plan for this particular layout here today, uh, I had to sit down with a piece of paper and write down all of the wattages of everything I was going to plan to plug in here and then make sure that I wasn't overloading any particular circuit. So I have some heaters here for winter, so they're on a separate circuit. My lighting is generally on a separate circuit, but with the LED lighting that I'm using here, I could include it uh, with my monitors and my laptop power and various other things we have. So. The thing is to do the math. Just work on what your circuit capacity is. Make sure you're a little bit under that capacity. So if there's any spikes or drop-offs in your generating power to your location or you're having a thunderstorm or something, then you can probably bounce through it. But if you're running your limit, then you're warming the whole place up, and that's a little dangerous. Uh, I've uh, been calculating these things sort of in my head as a lighting guy. 
so I've I've had no trouble with it. But I can tell you right now, with uh, the low level LEDs and and the kind of things we have in our monitors now that are very energy efficient, uh, we haven't had to have a whole lot of extra circuits for the kind of setups most of the people at office hours are using. Go ahead, John. Yeah, and and my question isn't about. I know total wattage matters uh, for sure, and I understand that. And my math there is fine. What I'm wondering is because I know you're not supposed to plug like outlets or power strips into power strips into power strips, or like your printer says, don't plug this into a power strip and all sorts of stuff like that. I'm mm-hmm. just wondering, is there like a maximum load per outlet if it's all on the same overall circuit? And I I don't know the answer to that. Well, the outlet is the the capacity. So if you wanted to keep one thing from failing and having other stuff allow it to fail, then you separate them. Uh, if I wanted my lights to be permanent and my audio to be not, well, then I could run even things on battery, which I did once with uh, a light here. I just run it on a battery. But uh, the calculation is still the same. Uh, you're just looking at what your outlet has. And you can put two or three chained together uh, power bars. And as long as you're not running more than you know nine watts a, a plug, uh, you should be fine. Yes, as far as the um, wattage, I agree with what um, Dave had said. Um, most outlets are rated, if you have more than one outlet in a circuit, they're rated for in North America. They're uh, mostly United States power. They're rated for um, at least 15 amps. Some are rated for 20 amps. Um, you can buy um 20 amp or 15 amp so that will change your calculation as far as how much is available the 15 amp the 20 amp will be uh 2200 uh watts at uh calculated at 110 volts so that's your power uh draw um even a 15 if you, i will say that if you do buy a 15 amp circuit it actually passes through so if you have more than one um receptacle on a circuit it'll pass through the full 20 amps even if you can only access 15 from that individual amp the nec uh, national electric code is a bit um uh vague as far as hard limits um on it has it gives a general uh guideline as far as how many you have um the principle um of the uh, the spacing of how close or how far away you can put your outlets is so that you don't um put a bunch of uh, octopus or spider wiring all routed to one location. So the impetus behind requiring six foot or I think it's two meter uh, uh, minimum distance between outlets such that you have the required amount of outlets in a habitable uh, space means that you're not routing all of your cables to a single area, which can be a fire hazard, tripping hazard, temptation to run things under uh, under rugs. So what happens is, even if the wattage is sufficient, what you find is that there could be some routing issues with running a lot of things to a single outlet. And so there might be some logistics that uh, that necessitate that. Um, if you do use this for some kind of production, you'll probably want some type of surge suppression or UPS. And UPS enables both um, battery backup on some circuits. They also offer pass-through circuits. So even the ones that you may not necessarily uh, want to power up or may have too much energy draw for your necessary voltage, you can still use the pass-through voltage on that. So that would um, eliminate you having to run several wires off to a, an outlet 
which depending on your your planning might be difficult to get to, uh, which may disincentivize you from plugging or unplugging things. Go ahead, Dave. I think one of the other aspects here, and it just occurred to me as you were talking, that uh, circuits and outlets are are different things. And in my home, we discovered uh, so many of the circuits that I had in some parts of the house were connected to power sources and the same circuit in a different room. And we didn't discover this until some things, uh, the famous one in our house is if you had the toaster on, you were fine. But if you turned the light on in the living room, it would pop the circuit because they had wired it on the same circuit. And these outlets were like two rooms apart. Uh, then when I discovered things in my basement were simply drops from the main floor, then when I plugged things in the basement, I had to calculate for that as well as the uh, the main floor just above that circuit or that outlet. So circuits and outlets, yes, you've got to count how many outlets are on that circuit, and then that adds up to the 1,500 on the circuit. Uh, we had the whole house rewired after that because we saw potential on in our kitchen anyway for fire hazard with three of the, the outlets all being on the same circuit. Hope that gives you some uh, reference there, John. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. What is a mini room, and why do striking Hollywood writers hate it so much? Go ahead, John. Yeah, I'm not super educated on this, but I was reading a little bit about the writer strike last night, and there's a great article on from Slash Film that we'll put into chat about the strike, and it seems that. A couple of the main themes for the strike are, and this is me trying to be unbiased, the article is definitely pro-strike. Pro um, the writers really want to preserve writing jobs. And um, part of that is, as a result of the last writer's strike, some productions started using mini-rooms, which is a way to have writers write the story with a smaller crew of writers before production. And um, as a result, the writers aren't involved once production happens, and that saves costs for the uh, production company, but leads to lesser writing. Um, and so one of the goals is to get rid of the mini-rooms because writers feel that they are uh, pressured to do more work with less time and less pay, and they end up with a worse product as a result. But a lot of the other things that are, that are arguing about are essentially ways to ensure that there is a an adequate number of writers for each show, including things like um, negotiating how to use a technology like ChatGPT or what to do with the residuals. Um, I think where I struggle to, to empathize with the writers myself is the world moves on and with that tech, with the advent of technology, um, business models change. And to say that with the with the advent of streaming, the streamers basically pay a lump sum up front, and that creates a lot more security for the writers because they get paid more to start, but they don't get the residuals from the show in the long term. And that's a, a point of contention: is writers make a lot of money on the residuals sometimes, and it's really hard to be. There's a lot of struggling writers. Um, the fact is. Part of getting paid more upfront is for that is that security, and security comes at a cost. It's the time value of money, and so it's going to be an interesting uh, back and forth between the Writers Guild and the production studios uh, to see how it happens. But uh, that's what my understanding is at this time. All right, thanks for checking that out, John. Hopefully, that gives you something to chew on. Mitchell, let's go to our next question. It's from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. Have you seen Khan Academy's AI-based chatbot? Conmigo. Is this the future of tutoring? Go ahead, Aaron. 
So I was not able to watch the video because I was here and I didn't want to listen to two things at once, but I threw um, the prompt into chat GPT, summarize and give five talking points about this video, and I gave the link. Um, so first of all, love that. Absolutely love that. Um, so I did try to check out the um, the, con the Conmigo, and unfortunately, there's a waiting list right now, so I can't even attempt to check it out. Um, but I do think that AI, as Dr. Clark says, assistive technology or um, assistive in intelligence, I think it definitely can be a great stepping stone. I think the tech companies have to walk a very fine line between allowing students to just say, write a paper about this particular topic and teachers assigning something that generic that students could just Google or throw into an AI system. But I think for the concept of tutoring, I think it could be really helpful because it could allow the AI to analyze the student's performance and give feedback a lot quicker than a teacher could for a room of 21 to 30 students. Um, they're able to get quicker feedback with something like AI. So I think that's going to help identify areas where students are struggling. And then if there was some way for it to give a report back to the teacher that, hey, you know, Johnny was working on this. He did great on these five things, but totally tanked in this. You know, this is a way you could solve it just to give the teacher at least some sort of idea of how to help them out if they're not sitting with them working one-on-one -on -one with them. I also think this would allow students to work more independently and take out some of the extra paperwork the teachers have to go through because I know a lot of teachers are feeling burnt out right now. And yes, sometimes it can be the students just trying to make sure that we're covering all of our bases, but a lot of it's just paperwork and meetings. I would say if I could give up all paperwork and meetings, I would be a much happier camper. So if an AI is going to take away at least some of that for me, I'd be forever grateful. Would you like to weigh in, John? Yeah, this particular chatbot is really interesting in that it's modal. And so uh, when it's in student mode, it doesn't give the student the answer. It The student can ask a question, like a math question, and it will give hints first. And it will get progressively more hints and then if it does have to give the answer, it explains how it came up with the answer itself. So it said, here's how I knew to do those steps, um, which is a, a thing that most of these chatbots don't have yet. And how they do that is they actually have the answer run through the bot twice um, on the back end. And so it's a chatbot spits out the answer and then the chatbot reads the answer and reinterprets the answer. Um, there's also a teacher mode. And it's specific for teachers to help uh, create uh, lesson plans and that sort of stuff, all designed around a education-focused language model, which is uh, a kind of neat way to put all of that together. It's really worth a watch. It was David Paskin put that in our Discord channel last week, and it, I thought it was fascinating. It's a brave new world. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Alex Lindsay in Nevada, California. What do teachers do over the summer to prepare for the next school year? Good, Archie. Keep learning. Dr. Clark? Well, teachers do all kinds of different things, but I put them in four categories. One is recover. And uh, anyone who's been through the spring semester 
in schools uh, as a, as an adult um, knows that it requires recovery. It's it's running a marathon uh, while carrying a suitcase. Um, so there's a recovery period. It could be longer. It could be shorter. It could be as far away from the routines of the the school year as possible, or it could be a variation on that on the school year. Stay, stay, staycation, so to speak. The second thing that teachers do in category of things is uh, is look around, and this is a time when many teachers make the final decision to change jobs. They they don't want to spoil their final weeks or months at their current school, but they're looking for a place that they hope will have better conditions for them, better support, um, and so forth. So a lot of uh, principals and and, uh, personnel people in school districts kind of dread the month of June or July because that's when the the resignations start to trickle in because people have, teachers have decided to move on to what they hope will be a better situation. A third thing is um, that they try, teachers try to uh, enhance their income. If they're not employed on a 12-month contract, which is rare, uh, it's rare that teachers have 12-month contracts, then uh, here's an opportunity to uh, make some extra money. When I was a kid, the, the kinds of second jobs that teachers had in the summer were camp counselor and um, gas station attendant. It was before we were able to pump our own gas. Um, and sometimes that decision is to, about the financial decision is about uh, changing jobs to uh, something that's promising a better income or a higher level, or even uh, pursuing a master's degree if they don't have one already, uh, which in many districts, at least it used to be the case that um, you would get a bump in salary if you added to your official credentials, uh, including uh, an advanced degree. Uh, so, so, and then finally, uh, long about August, um, there's planning. And you start to imagine, well, what, what am I doing? Uh, how can I prepare myself to get off to a great start with the next semester or the next class? Um, am, am I being asked to teach a different grade level than I've taught last year? And so what, what kind of extra preparation am I going to have to do to familiarize myself with the, the curriculum and the, the kids um, who are at this different grade level? Or has the district uh, adopted a new curriculum that we need to uh, show up for training on and uh, be able to uh, look, look smart uh, on the first day or the first weeks of school? So those are the things that I, the categories of things that I think we do as teachers during the summer. Aaron? Back in the day, I used to take courses for a master's degree or my CAGS. 
but I am done with that for just a short amount of time because, <laughs> well, I love to learn. I love to be focused on things I want to learn about versus what I am being asked to learn about in certain courses. So I would say, yes, I would continue to learn, but it's going to be more relaxed at my own pace, knowing that there's not a paper due, no meetings I have to attend, hopefully. Um, but for me, it's it's a lot of catching up with my friends because my closest four friends are all teachers. <laughs> I have another third grade teacher friend. I have two first grade teacher friends and a high school math teacher. And they all have kids and they're all my nieces and nephews. So I want to make sure I spend time with them so that during the school year, when you're stressed and burnt out, you can think back to memories that make you happy. <laughs> and I know during the summer, those are the kinds of activities and memories I like to hold on to so that when I do have a rough moment, I can think back on it. But it's a lot just about relaxation because I don't know what it's been about the past two years, but teachers are so burnt out. They're so burnt out. And like you said, Chris, I know a bunch of teachers are thinking like, can I do this again next year? Even teachers who have been in the system less than 10 years. Usually you don't get that until after the first 10 years, but a lot's going on and some of it is very undescribable. Something that we can't really quite figure out what is going on. Work well and rest well. Let's go to our next question. It comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. What is the future of education for students who want to go into the production field and are learning more from YouTube than in the classroom? Go ahead, Dave. Well, uh, having been in that transition in the classroom and taught in that area, uh, what happened is that it went from teaching people to be crew to teaching people to be producers. And this is a huge change in the way education and production field is. YouTube is limited by what a person is an expert in. Just as at office hours here, we have a wide range of experts who all have different levels of experience and knowledge. And drawing on that knowledge is the way to get more understanding of production. Uh, even in the area of project management or how to handle crews or people skills, uh, how to get along in teams, how to behave well on a set. These, these kind of things come with being there and doing them. And that's the education that comes after you've been to production school. And I think uh, some of the things are better learned by doing and not by watching someone explain it on YouTube. And I endorse people giving it a try, going out and, and becoming a sort of observer on a crew or be in the background or a PA for a long time and watch how everybody works on a set. Watch what the roles are, the responsibilities, how they consult with others on the team, what problems they're solving all the time. And, and that I don't think schools are prepared to teach because they sure they have a studio and they teach how to do the news and operate the equipment. But when it comes to the actual skills of, say, uh, project planning and budgeting and the kind of things that people have to learn to do these days, uh, schools are a little far behind still. Still trying to catch up, but they're still a little far behind. Let's go to our next question. Our next one's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Best print to text software. Go ahead, Arshid. So I uh, want to give a shout out to the backstage team with Laura. She has here uh, Read Iris as one of the solutions that could be one of the best. And I'm just going to add to this is the 
implementation or the platform that it's uh, pushed through is going to make all the difference. Uh, Apple's Notes, if you use that and uh, use the OCR there, it works really well. And that's just because of the implementation. It's all native there. Uh, on the Google side, like Google Lookout and Vision AI app and other apps as such, they do a really good job. But again, it's the grabbing of the OCR engine and putting it into your application. Um, and then with Microsoft, similarly, they have uh, Microsoft Lens that kind of does the same thing. And they have an app called Seeing AI, which uses some of the uh, same uh, fundamentals there. So it's it's kind of a uh, what platform are you in and what do you need it to do and how clear do you need it to be? Uh, because you might have a standalone solution with a camera and a computer type of situation where that works out the best through that specific software, um, which that's all it does is scan software for OCR. Uh, and those are normally assistive technology softwares. And then you also have something like a solution that is everyday, everybody uses it, like we mentioned in Notes and Google Lookout and such. So those are a few solutions there. All right. Thanks for our backend crew. Go ahead. Let's go to our next question. Our next one's from Mandy Van Cleve in Monroe, Ohio. What titles do I look for in the crew credits to know who did the amazing editing work in the documentary Still, a Michael J. Fox movie? Go ahead, Dave. I'm going to suggest you look at the uh, teamwork in the category of editing and post-production. Uh, the number of people who edit in a large project sometimes can be a long list, but in many cases with documentaries, uh, the director or the person who wrote the documentary and as well, some of the edit team that they brought in are all part of the production team way before in the pre-production and the planning. But yes, the edit section is usually quite distinguished. It's way, it's not way far down the list, but it, it's it's in there. And if you just keep your eye open for uh, edit, edit assistant, uh, post-production editing, and and production services, you'll find many of the names of the people who did all that great work. Let's go to our next question. Our next one's from Douglas Carmichael. For a larger complex system like the OH2 rack, would you ever use in-rack cooling systems to avoid overheating or rely on cooling the space itself? Well, I believe some of the factors that determine that was your ambient uh, temperature, your distance uh, spacing between individual items in the rack, as well as the, um, what the temperature draws for, for different devices. However, I would encourage you, though, um, just a preview on next Friday, we will be having a discussion about how office hours works. So perhaps that might be a good thing to throw in for some of our back-end professionals for that show. Let's go to our next question. And our next one is from Aaron Graham here on the panel and in Boston, Massachusetts. How has the panel used ChatGPT in their own fields? Go ahead, John. Did you just say my name, Josh? Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead <laughs> my my headphones uh, bleeped out there. Sorry. <laughs> um, my favorite thing to use it for is for writing multiple choice questions. Multiple choice questions are, you know, it's not always the best way to test or assess someone with a, with a quiz, but sometimes they're the right thing. And it's hard to write a question well because you want all your answers to be realistic, about the same size, and filter out whether or not the person actually learned the content. So one prompt I use is 
You're an instructional designer at a hospital call center. You use simulations and realistic scenarios to build a quiz to measure students' ability to apply the course topic. Create five multiple choice questions, each with one correct response and three distractor responses. Base the questions on the following topic. And then I put the topic in instructions. The distractor responses should be of similar length to the correct answer. All responses should be based on real world scenarios that force the learner to choose the best action to take. There should be three good options with a fourth correct answer that is better than the others. Explain why. Dr. Clark? Oof. I'm impressed with the way John has jumped in to using AI as his uh, go-to assistant for multiple choice questions. Um, I must confess that I used AI, a formal AI system for the first time yesterday. So I'm fresh from an initial experience. It didn't happen to be chat GPT. It was one called PI, P-I. And um, to experiment with it, I wrote a little paragraph describing a, a project that I've been involved in, which aspires to change the narrative about teaching to something that's more uh, reflective and more positive reflective of reality and positive about uh, taking the point of view of the teacher and what, what they contribute and what it takes to do that. So I asked the uh, assistant, Pi, um, to uh, give me some suggestions about how to interview teachers in a, in a project I call Ordinary Teachers having extraordinary moments. So the idea is that most teachers don't identify with the super teachers who are sometimes portrayed in films, uh, you know, Dead Poet Society and so forth, uh, saying, well, that's very impressive, but I'm not Robin Williams or I'm not the teacher on whom that uh, screenplay was based. So. I can kind of dismiss that, say, wow, it was impressive, but I'm never going to be that person. Um, instead, what I'd like us to find are models or examples of ordinary teachers, teachers who call themselves ordinary, think of themselves as not superstars. But several times a year, I bet those teachers have extraordinary moments. And I want to hear those stories, those small victories, as what's called in uh, the title of a book on a theme like this. And so I asked this art AI, uh, what kinds of questions, interview questions, might I use to, uh, to elicit some of these stories of extraordinary moments when I talk to ordinary teachers? And... Uh, it was very chatty and conversational. I was impressed with the the sound of the the text that came back right away, of course. Uh, but it, it wasn't too scarily immediate. It was more like the the kind of pause that you get when you're asking a friend a question like this. They'll say, well, let me think about that for a minute. Here's what I think. And... Uh, and we carried on a conversation of about four turns. Uh, it was very supportive. Uh, I think that was a kind of a built-in uh, positive bias. It wasn't 
critical or it was very uh, complimentary about what a great idea this is. And, you know, I, I think you're going to do a lot of good with this. So it was, it wasn't all um, technical and substantive and um, showing off its speed and sophistication. It was, it, sort of did the human thing, which is say, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting idea. Let me think about that. Now, if, if I were in your shoes, here's, here's one of the ways I would try to elicit some of those stories, invite those teachers to tell the stories. So I found it to be um, very helpful. Um, I deliberately asked about a topic that I had that I knew a lot about already and had already made some decisions about. So, so I had, a, in a sense, the upper hand. Uh, I wasn't a, a puzzled novice with regard to this topic. Um, but I think that's a, that may be uh, something I learned and, and ought to be passed on to others that um, you're more vulnerable to the, the weaknesses of, artificial intelligence if you d if you really don't know much about um, the topic that you're asking for some help with what what I am looking for is a, a boost of about 10% I want to go 10% beyond what I'm already capable of doing on my own and if AI can help me do that that's great and I feel comfortable with that rather than saying, well, I'm, I'm going to give it, give it over 100% to the AI because it's much smarter and faster than I am. Um, so I'm thinking about it as icing on a cake that's already baked to my specifications. Now let's take it, take it up one half level. Thank you, Dr. Clark. When we get our ChatGPT panelist, we could ask them that question. Thank you for everyone that has contributed for our first hour. Stay tuned, though. We're going to go right into our education hour immediately. As soon as we have some of our announcements, you'll not want to miss next week's program. It's just been pushed out in the email for today. But our Monday topic will be the business of theater. Several of our native um, theater uh, individuals or our members here in office hours will be talking about how they make the financial sense of theater. So you will not want to miss that. On Tuesday, our graphics day, Pixel professor Nick Jesterson is back with live camera and lens tracking for visual production. Wednesday, we have a special treat with Kilohertz Phase Plant of a fantastic uh, presentation that you'll want to see for there, the, some synthetics that they're using for audio. Our video day, HDR, glass to glass with uh, Michael Dresden and Jim Toten as well as our Friday, How Office Hours Works. So if you'd like to find out about the nuts and bolts of how office hours works, tune in for our Friday's discussion. And now we'll move to our education hour. John, what do we have today? Thanks, Josh. Today we're going to be talking about how to effectively assess your students' learning. Uh, we're going to start with a panel discussion. So panelists, if you'd like to share your perspectives, I have a couple of questions for us as a panel. And so just raise your hand on that panel question. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering first, my very first question is, what's your first thought? Well, I, we already have a bunch of hands, so let's just get into it. Uh, Aaron, why don't you go ahead? 
So the title of this is called Effective Assessments. And um, I'm going to jump right on my little soapbox here and say that standardized tests are not one of them. (laughs) I could keep going, but I know there's other people that want to contribute because I could take a whole hour to talk about just that. So that's my two cents. But I guess if I want to put something positive in, effective assessment is knowing your students, knowing what you've taught, and seeing how they can show you what they've learned. Doesn't have to be a formal test, does not have to be even a project. It can just be based on observation. Thanks, Aaron. And yeah, I'm, I'm hoping our conversation go, can go beyond standardized testing. I know my kids were in two weeks of tests as a fifth grader, um, which was when I, I was shocked to find that out. Uh, but Dr. Clark, what is your thoughts on assessments? Like Aaron, I think these themes will come come up as we address other questions later. But um, two themes I want to focus on are one is the word effective assessments. Uh, effective for what? For what and for whom? Uh, I think we have to unpack that. There's no such thing as uh, a generically or intrinsically effective assessment. It's effective for some purpose and for some audience. So, so let's look at that. Is it, is it really effective for the learner, the student uh, who's being assessed, whose work is being assessed? Or is it uh, being driven by uh, a need that other adults have to, to sort, to compare, to uh, reward and, adv- and advise, to uh, revise instruction and so forth and so on? So I think there's a lot of unpacking that needs to happen about that term effective. And then uh, the second uh, important idea to me is that um, throughout schooling, certainly throughout my schooling, the idea was that of assessment was that um, I was being ranked and uh, and directed in in different directions depending on how well my test scores or my grades uh, pointed me toward college, for example, or not college. And in those days, perhaps only 10% of the high school graduates in Philadelphia, where I grew up, um, went to college. And there were many fewer fewer seats available in higher education than there are today. So, um, but but the the thing I observed, more or less in hindsight, is that um, the goal of assessment was to eventually to take on to internalize the idea of assessment in ourselves. And, but it was always handled all throughout my schooling by others. Others took care of assessing my work and, and me. And, and then the magical thinking was that, well, after you go through uh, 12 or 20 years of education, you'll, you'll automatically be able to do self-assessment when you graduate or when you move out into a world where you're supposedly applying the things you learned in school. Uh, but we've had no practice at self-assessment, systematic 
tracking of our own performance, um, clear assessment of the quality of the work that we've done, or could it be better, or what could we take another two days and make this even better? So, um, so I'm a big fan of uh, introducing the idea of self-assessment, um, peer assessment into uh, the schooling experience rather than relying on so-called objective measures, which aren't really objective and, and I'm not so sure what they measure. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you so much for that uh, finale there. Dave, what are your initial thoughts on effective assessments? I was really interested in this because I've had to do assessment both in the classroom structure and also in business. Uh, being a project manager managing 25 staff, I had to assess them every year. Uh, with another company I worked for, which was a startup kind of operation, very small, uh, they needed an assessment tool for their staff. They needed to be able to assess them, and it came upon me to research that and figure out a way of having a standardized assessment for their performance assessment, not necessarily educational. But the hardest thing I ever had to do was assess students and how, you know, how they performed in the class and also whether they were learning what we were teaching. And I think that's the biggest challenge for me is, is it's an effective assessment if you can determine that they did learn something, that they have captured the skill or they know this subject. And that would be where assessment is effective for me. Uh, assessing people just to grade them or, as Dr. Clark says, rank them uh, seemed to me to be unproductive. So I'm willing to go and see what other people are asking, but this for me is a fascinating subject. Yeah, it's interesting. Several on the panel focused on the word effective there. And I'm curious if we can keep on this panel discussion. Um, what do you think it means to be effective and who gets to decide what effectiveness is or how? So uh, we'll do another round here. But while we're waiting for our panelists to raise hands, I want to say to our producers, if you have questions about assessments, make sure you put them into our chat. Uh, over the course of the week, we had Jason Robert Shaw put some questions into Discord. So I've put a few questions in there from our Discord channel, and they start with the word Discord. Uh, because he said he would hope he'd join us today, but he wasn't sure. And so I put those questions in for him. So if you ever want to do that yourself, feel free to put those into Discord and we'll try to bring them in on the Saturday as well. But Dave, when we talk about effective, what does that bring up to you? It brings up to me that a person's performance improved. That's, that's where the effectiveness of the assessment is. If, if the assessment shows this person is now better at doing their job or better at understanding a subject, then that's where the assessment is really performing. How about you, Aaron? I would say what Dave said as well, um, and then tacking on the caveat that um, the students were able to show that without getting too frustrated or crying. That's what I would say. And Dr. Clark. There are two, two qualities of um, a traditional assessment, some kind of a measuring device. Uh, one quality is called reliability. And that means that the results that you get from using that tool, a test of some kind, a measure of some kind, are consistent. If you measure the same people time and time again, um, over relatively short periods of time, the results won't be dramatically different from time to time. So it's a, a reliable 
measure and tool. The second quality and much more important quality, in my opinion, is validity. And that means that the instrument, the assessment, actually measures what you say it measures. And that one is impossible to um, calculate. You, you have to guess about validity because uh, learning is invisible. Performance is not invisible, but learning is invisible. And that's what we're making an inference to. We're, take, we're taking a performance of some kind and inferring that, well, that shows that you must know something that you didn't know before instruction. Uh, but it could also mean, in the case of the multiple choice exam, for example, that you were a lucky guesser or that that the, the exam, uh, the tool for assessment wasn't, wasn't really too challenging. It was kind of obvious that the distractor items were stupid. <laughs> it, it, you didn't need to know, be able to recognize the correct answer. You just needed to recognize that the other three were beyond the pale. They couldn't have been correct. So, so it could be a flaw in the assessment tool itself. But regardless, um, I think a, the other complicating factor here is that um, we, we treasure what we can measure. And uh, the more simply and quantitatively we can measure it, or express it, uh, the more um, confidence, misplaced confidence, I would say, we have in the importance of that uh, measure or that assessment. So, so that the things that tend to get measured are the things that are easier to measure. And a lot of the things that we care about and parents care about with regard to their kids are not the things that are easy to measure their social emotional matters that um, are much more, uh, they're not measurable with uh, convenient, quantifiable um, devices like a test. So, um, so that's the quandary that, that uh, people in schooling or in training have gotten themselves into, which is we're really good at measuring things that may really not be that important and we're we're making important decisions about people and and how and our own uh, effectiveness as uh, teachers and learners on the basis of uh, invalid, relatively invalid um, indicators. So that's that's the dilemma that everybody who's interested in assessment uh, need to wrestle with. And it's, it's, not, it's not a dilemma that can be, like a problem can be solved. It may take a long time, but you can, a problem has a solution, but a dilemma is never, you're never done with it. You're always balancing uh, one horn of the dilemma against the other, and you're giving up some things that you value in order to 
uh, amplify other things that you also value. So, so the idea of dilemma management, the assessment is a dilemma. It's not a problem space. And, and I think we wish it were a problem space that we could solve. We could have the, the best tests and be happy with those, but it's not. It's intrinsically something that requires continual balancing and rebalancing and, and questioning. And as I said earlier, um, ultimately what we're trying to, what we're hoping to do is that individuals will internalize a sense of the quality of the work and, uh, and the quality of their contributions to the whole and what they can do to make that better rather than having somebody else um, look over their shoulder and tell them that they're not up to, up to snuff. Yeah. It's interesting. The, there are some similarities between uh, K through 12 or higher education and corporate education, especially things like we met, make it easy on ourselves to measure. And so we end up writing poor assessments Um some of the same challenges with multiple choice questions or test questions in general come up. The difference is oftentimes in ed- in the education world, you at least know that that's a problem. In the corporate world, most people don't even know about validity or reliability of questions. And so we write questions where there's one, even if there's just one bad distractor in a multiple choice question, then your, your guess rate, if someone has to guess, goes from a 25% chance of getting it right to a 33% chance. If you have two bad distractors, then it's a, it's a flip of the coin whether they get it right. Um, and so that's where those writing good questions is really hard for both worlds. Where it's different is in the corporate world, I don't care a lick about what the people learn. I care what they can do. Um, Because if I don't have to train someone, then it doesn't matter. They need to pass the test. Um, And they need, more importantly than passing the test, they need to do the job. They need to, to be able to successfully perform the behaviors I need them to on the job, whether or not they feel it or they uh, learned it, they need to do it correctly within a certain uh, level of scope. And that sounds um, insensitive, I guess, uh, but that's the reality of it is I need people to do work. And so that's what I'm trying to educate on and how my assessments change because of that. Dave? Just to go on a completely different departure here, won't do it for long. I had the opportunity when... um, being the video producer of instructional materials for the faculty of education here, there was a professor of educational psychology whose task, all her grad students got the task of assessing an assessment test. I learned that we had a library of 300 different aptitude and personality tests and IQ tests on hand in these package boxes that they would use with people to assess them so that it assess their capability of spatial reasoning and all the other things that these tests do. And the job of the grad student was to critique the test and say whether it properly applies to the kind of things it said it would reveal. Uh, one of the ones that struck me as being really odd is called the Detroit Test of Learning Aptitude, a widely used, normalized, and validated test. And the student that did that assessment found it wanting in so many respects. And I thought to myself, that's an assessment that most of us don't really experience as an aptitude test or a psychological test to see if our neurological processes are working properly. But that's a level of assessment that's really extreme and not really at the sort of classroom level. And and I just thought, you know, 
that grad student assignment taught me a heck of a lot about what good assessment's supposed to look like. And I, I did it for about three years with grad students for each of those three years. And we got through most of the library through that time. So I got to learn there were a whole lot of them. And the little confession here, my wife being a psychologist, when she was taking her master's, she needed someone to do a test with, and she used me. So I played a 14-year-old and tried to do the test, and it was very uh, difficult for her. How about Aaron, what do you have to say? So just to th- as I'm listening to everybody, I think for me, the most effective concept of assessment when I think of the word effective is how can I see what they know, regardless of age, regardless of IEP, 504, anything like that. If I taught area and perimeter, can you show me in some way that you understand it? Maybe it's you describing something to me, how you would solve the problem. Maybe it's me listening in on that student, teaching the other another student how to do the problem. It could be that someone builds something. It could be that someone graphically designs something. So something that's effective is going to be for the students to show us what they know. Sometimes that's not easy for teachers because they want to give them all something that is basically in their curriculum or something that they can take home and grade quickly so they can do a check that, oh, they know how to do area and perimeter, but can they actually do it or did they just do a quick checkbox? So for me, effectiveness really isn't a physical test because if you came into my classroom, you would, and you ask any of my students, they would tell you, Miss Graham doesn't give us tests unless the district tells her to. So there has never been a test that has passed their desk, their Google Classroom, that is a test for me because to me, everything's a test. It could be a blue kit game where they're doing multiple choice questions. It could be them drawing something out, explaining something to somebody. Because when I was younger and probably still to this day, I'm not a good test taker. Even with the multiple choice, I kind of I I know the the distractor answers, but then I get a little tongue tied between the two that are kind of close. So for me, papers were the way to go because I could explain. I could be verbose. I could really get into my thoughts about the topic. Some of my students are like that. Some of them want to talk at me and I'll sit there and I'll let them just share what they know. And because one of my students has difficulty with reading and writing and they'll say to me, but I know the math. Can I explain it? And I say, I will write. You tell me what to write. And their answers would rival a teacher's. Actually, they probably explained it better than I did. So many times I actually have that student sit in the back of the room once I've given an assignment and said, if you have a question, go see them. If they don't know, come see me. So Aaron, are you using different types of assessment for your different students for the same uh, content? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I just want to make sure that everybody can show me what they know without being frustrated and overwhelmed. If a student can't draw out something for area and perimeter, but they can tell me about it or tell another student how to draw it, but they can't draw it themselves, great. Because everybody in their jobs isn't doing every single piece of it. They're doing a chunk of it. Somebody else is doing another chunk. You know, 
unless you're owning your own business where you're doing everything, you have people to help you to do different things, to accomplish the same goal. So what's the goal of learning is acquiring knowledge. So if you can acquire knowledge in different modalities, why not? Awesome. We're going to dive into our producer questions next. Uh, so remember that you can put in your questions through our Mukana chat question box, and you can vote up and down the questions that you would like to hear answered in the order you want them answered. Dave, what's our first question? We're starting with Douglas Carmichael. In the age of chat GPT and its ilk, should teachers focus more on progressive assessments during the life of an assignment instead of just assessing the end product? Dr. Clark? Yes. <laughs> I love the idea of progressive assessment, as Douglas terms it. Um, it's one of the, again, a dilemma that teachers face, which is, we have so much material to cover and so little time. And so what we wind up doing or uh, being feeling pressure to do is um, touch lightly on the many topics that are called for in a curriculum instead of uh, taking the opportunity to go more deeply into some of the big ideas of this subject matter. So in this case, and take the example of the teaching of writing. Um, in my experience, when, when my students wrote um, papers for a class or a course, um, a lot of the ink was still a little bit wet when they turned them in. It was first draft material done very close to the deadline or maybe slightly behind the deadline. Um, and so a first draft, as you know, is, is not as good as the second draft. And this process of revision is what makes uh, okay writing become better and better writing. So my preference in designing uh, assignments during a course is to um, have every assignment done three times. And of course, you can you you can't do as wide a variety of assignments with that kind of a schedule. But what you do is you you do a first draft version of it, and you you turn it in, and it gets you get feedback on it. But then your job isn't to file it away; it's to make it better. In two weeks, you're going to produce something that's a better version of what you were able to do the first time through maybe incorporating some of the feedback, maybe deciding not to incorporate it. That's your, you're the author. And then let's do it a third time just to be sure we've squeezed every possibility out of this. And I think that's the way the real world works as well. That, that the goal is not to, to uh, produce as many witches as possible, but to have some quality control about it, to keep working on it until it's, as best as we can possibly do. So um, that would be my answer to Douglas Carmichael. And I think it's, it was relevant before chat GBT. And I think it's even more relevant today. Thanks, Aaron. Absolutely. Most teachers, especially in the K to 12 realm are looking at assessments, doing what are called formative assessments. So 
we are, we're taught in our education classes in college that there are two types of assessment, formative and summative. Summative is the end of the unit, like final test, final assessment. Informative is throughout. So summative is very formal, whereas formative is very informal. So for that, you can do observations, you can do games, you can um, do regular classwork. Um, that is considered an assessment. And a teacher can look at that data and say, ooh, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Let me change up what I'm doing. Or they already know this. Let's just move on. So in the concept with the the chat GPT concept, um, I think I'm trying to figure out how it's going to be altered there. But I think going back to what you were saying, John, earlier about um, about your prompt uh, that, that you were talking about in the last hour, um, I think using something like that could extend their learning. But overall, I don't think something like a, if you're going to give an assessment that you can throw the questions into chat GPT and get a really quick answer shouldn't be something that's an effective assessment at all. Yeah, I wonder if what uh, Douglas is talking about regarding ChatGPT is if your assessment is an essay, um, ChatGPT makes it very simple for students to pass an essay without doing the learning or, well, they are doing a work. Uh, it's probably not the work the teacher is expecting. And for that, I think it's really helpful to encourage students to use tools like ChatGPT, but have as part of that step in your learning process is um, have them share what they used in ChatGPT for and evaluate ChatGPT's response. And say, yeah, I I used that chat GPT for this paper. Um, here's the parts that I was found accurate. Here's the parts I think it was not accurate with. Now, this is obviously going to be for higher levels like later high school through college. Um, but you can encourage them to use the tool and evaluate their learning by how they can analyze what chat GPT spits out. Uh, Aaron. So just thinking about that, it, it kind of got me thinking of an idea that um, – we see this a lot in on our standardized tests that I will scooch away from, but the concept of someone has done the work, whether it's writing a paragraph, writing a sentence, doing a math problem, find their mistakes. So I think if a teacher especially were to put into ChatGPT an essay or uh, give me an essay based on this topic, but then the teacher changed some of the facts and said, students find what is incorrect about this versus write an essay, then you know that number one, the students are reading the information because then their assessment is to find what's wrong. And students love finding out what's wrong with someone else's work, as long as it's not their own. And you're giving them that technological piece of using a chat, like your chat GPT or other things, similar um systems, but you're giving them that chance to think critically and say, something's not right about this. What is it? I think that could be an effective way to use chat GPT instead of just giving them a very vague question and letting it write an essay for you. And chat GPT does fine on its own making errors. So you might not even need to add your own. Um, Dr. Clark? One of the ways I've tried to make uh, assignments writing assignments um, cheat-proof or at least uh, less tempting to delegate to somebody else is to turn every assignment into an autobiographical exercise. So 
your task, if you're in my class on uh, adolescent development, is to tell a story that you remember from your own adolescence experience that reflects the idea of identity development, for example, or the identity crisis. And and you might start with your name. How how many who gave you your name when you were born, and how many connections are there between your name and ancestors of yours, or the canon of the saints? And uh, when did your name change? And what nicknames did you have? And who called you those nicknames? And which ones did you hate? And which ones did you love? And so forth. Um, and so it gets. This, the writer engaged in the big idea of identity development and perhaps its connection to what we are called and call ourselves. But it's not something that ChatGPT has a, a database on. It doesn't, it doesn't know your life story. Uh, and frankly, uh, students are much more fluent in their writing when they're writing about something that they know deeply and it's not likely to be contradicted by somebody else because they were the only ones that were there. So if we can make more of the opportunity to uh, connect the big ideas that we're uh, engaged in with autobiography and experience, then I think it's it solves a lot of problems or it moves around a lot of the problems of ten and temptations of commission buying a paper online to have somebody else write it or have chat GPT write it because um, the author has the greatest easy access to the the real data, the real story of his or her own life. And what's our next question? Our next one comes from John Snyder, and it's a Discord-contributed question. What does assessment look like in an age of AI? Aaron? So thinking about AI and thinking about what Dr. Clark just said, I think the concept of assessment shouldn't just be a very basic question that can be a yes or no question, a true or false, something that can be answered with multiple choice or just a single sentence. I think it should be something that you can tie into real-world examples, something that ChatGBT couldn't come up with on their own because there's no database for how you are responding to it. So maybe instead of um, thinking about like what, I'm trying to think of something on the spot, um, like how did this character feel in this scenario, changing it to how would you have handled this situation? So you have to know the facts of the reading, but you're not just parroting something that the author has already said. Because I feel like ChatGPT could figure that out with enough learning of books and different texts. But putting yourself in the situation, I feel like that's a lot more of an effective way to know if they read the material, if they understand and comprehend what we're learning about. And I think it's going to require us to all reconsider how we assess because we all have our default favorite methods of teaching. And like, I love discussion questions in small groups. Um, and 
it, in a world of ChatGPT, discussion still is pretty valid. You can analyze real time how quickly people think, but it doesn't help the learners who need more time to process. So maybe you need to send the discussion questions in advance for those because they might have done really well with an essay. And if you don't think essays are a reliable means of assessment, uh, you're just going to need to rethink how you do everything. And we all have these defaults and it's good for us to get outside of our defaults. And I think it's an exciting time to learn how to teach again for a lot of teachers. What's our next question, Dave? Our next question is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. And it's a Discord question and contribution. What does assessment look like for virtual instruction? Aaron? So throwing it back to my days of teaching remotely, assessment for me was a lot of that discussion question. It was a lot of the, the blue kit questions that I could use based on the information so that I know they're not going to look it up quickly. They have to just answer on the spot. Um, yeah, I think for virtual instruction, actually, and in-person instruction as well, I think it's having that conversation piece with students. And it could be that you ask a question and then you as the teacher walk around and listen to kids, but they could also type it out for you um, so that or write it out for you so that it's not just a discussion. Because sometimes students don't feel like talking to their teacher, but they'll write something out or they'll draw something out. Um, so I think overall the virtual or in-person is the same that you got to just know your kids. You have to know how they learn, how they think, how you taught and combine that into a way to say, Hey, show what you know. Chris. My sense of what happened when, um, schools were closed in 2020 and, uh, Teachers all over the country, all over the world probably, had to pivot quickly to uh, online instruction is that um, suddenly we lost a lot of the, the capacity to uh, promote engagement by our students, by the, the kind of walking around that um, we just heard about from Aaron. Um, we couldn't walk around and a lot of our students for various reasons, good and bad, wouldn't turn on their cameras. So we lost even more uh, ability to do our own assessment of how this is going. Are, is anybody out there, are, are they really engaged or are simply logged in because <clears throat> they're required to log in to be accredited with uh, presence? Uh, for that day or for that um, class. So um, I think that the sort of what I would call dynamic assessment of of the, the teacher sort of asking, how is it going? Are we engaged? Who is engaged? Who's being left out? Who's being left in the dust is a, is a bit more challenging in live streamed uh, online education. Uh, or virtual instruction. Um, we might not even be doing ourselves a favor by calling it instruction, because a, a lot of teachers found themselves trying to replicate the six hour long school day through Zoom or other, other con uh, conferencing media. And it, 
it's not a good fit. It's not a very compatible fit to have people try to focus and be engaged in something for six hours on a laptop, uh, even if the quality is good. And many times there were a lot of problems with that. And even if they didn't feel like they looked good, so they turned off their their cameras, uh, then that makes it even more challenging. So um, assessment in in that case um, looked like uh, sort of hit, taking role and uh, confirming that this this number of students were present and some students were absent for unknown reasons or known reasons for that matter or technical reasons um, that we shouldn't hold them accountable for. So it was, I think there was a time of uh, relatively assessment-free um, virtual schooling. Uh, there were a lot of things that people weren't very happy about, um, but it wasn't the absence of testing or a formal assessment that they complained about, I don't think. Um, and now I think as we've gotten back into uh, the new normal of face-to-face -face teaching and learning, um, I think we're, more and more teachers are questioning the value of assessment-driven instruction uh, that existed uh, to a greater extent prior to the school closings because of COVID. So it's still a, a work in progress to answer this question about assessment. What does it look like in, in, for virtual instruction? It's too soon to tell, in my opinion, but it's certainly grounds for um, further uh, inquiry, further research and experiments and, and sharing of things that are working for some who are still doing, or perhaps for the 30% who aren't showing up again in some public school districts and who may well be in, in a virtual uh, learning environment as an alternative. Well, and maybe those virtual environments just showed what was happening in the classroom environment and parents saw it. So uh, could be. That's our next question there, Dave. It's another contribute contribution from Discord. How is assessment different and the same for adult learners versus children? Go ahead, Chris. It's both uh, different and the same <laughs> for both uh, adults and children. That is, there's some facets of assessment which are common across the age range. And basically that is um, that the learners are looking to show themselves at their best unless they're discouraged. And that happens a lot. And whether those learners are adults or children. And um, so that's one of the commonalities we want to, be at our best. I think we've also uh, gotten into a uh, a competitive sort of athletic contest model for a performance on assessments that it's so easy and so tempting to rank people and uh, even to many colleges and universities have uh, worried about what's called grade inflation that more and more students are being given A's 
And uh, they treat this as a, the same way that you would treat the debasement of a currency. An A doesn't mean the same thing as it used to mean. Uh, so we're going, we, the university, are going to give guidelines to professors that say there should only be 10% A's and there should be 20% B's and the average grade ought to be C or 2.0 and so forth. So forcing it onto a normal distribution, even if everybody learns a lot, uh, there's pressure to, to make it look like um, we're being rigorous here. We're not giving out A's uh, for showing up. Uh, we're, we're only giving out A's to the top 10% like we were when we were in school. And uh, so I think that's, that's a, uh, that may be a problem that's more conspicuous in higher education and, and maybe secondary education than it is in, uh, for younger kids. But um, the other uh, similarity and difference in um, children and adults uh, as learners being assessed is that um, I think we have more of a chance with young learners to use um, assessment opportunities as learning opportunities. In other words, uh, they're usually or stereotypically assessment is uh, something that's done to other people. It's not something that you yourself are are benefiting from. You're, it's it's your game seven. You know, it's your chance to succeed or come in at a, at a lower level. But um, the the big idea for me is to uh, in design assessments so that in preparing for an assessment, in undergoing an assessment, and on reflecting on it afterward, there's additional learning that's, that's possible for the learner. So it's not all about the system categorizing people, ranking people. It's about um, here's an additional learning opportunity that people uh, tend to take more seriously than just another day in the classroom. Uh, so uh, if we can start with younger students treating assessment as a learning opportunity and make that part of the culture of schooling, then I think that will continue to benefit um, older learners or adults, that, that this is not a threatening, scary, opportunity to show your faults or where you fall short. It's an opportunity to learn in a, in a different way than the way you were learning um, in the non-assessment parts of your schooling experience. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I was going to take this in the realm of expectations, that people conducting assessments have expectations that are different for adults as they are for children. And as Aaron is often talking about, you take into account the personality and the capabilities of that student. The other side is the expectation of the 
people being assessed, what they expect to get from the assessment. With adults, it's a little easier to explain that this will advance you professionally or this will give you a chance to apply to another job or some other or join a different team. And the assessment of your performance and, and how well you picked up those skills and what you learned from that course is going to help you in a career or in your life. With children, it's simply a way of making sure they're keeping up with everyone else and that they're not hampered or misunderstanding what's being learned. Uh, sometimes when people are being assessed and they're asked to do multiple choice questions or to write a short statement about something, they sometimes get the question wrong. They don't understand the question. They do understand the subject. It's just that this question seemed a little difficult. So our expectations for children is more simplified and uh, probably, as Dr. Clark says, probably a, a periodic assessment to show where learning opportunities might come in and maybe change the strategy for learning uh, is probably more applicable to younger people. But as we're adults, we often are more focused on outcomes than we are in process. And therefore, it's a little different in assessing that. And what's our next question? Our next one comes again from Douglas Carmichael. What assessment techniques are most effective with neurodiverse or intellectually challenged students? Aaron. So many of my students are neurodiverse and including, and I'm a neurodiverse person myself. Again, it kind of just kind of ties back to getting to know your student, getting to know how they learn, how they're able to share information with you. That's the best way that teachers can assess these any technique that you're teaching with students. So a lot of times it's a lot about showing, not telling. Like instead of um, students having to write out the steps in something, like how to make a grilled cheese, you maybe you might want to bring in the materials and say, tell me, how would you make a grilled cheese to make sure that no children are near open flames and the teacher can do it instead of the, the student. But having them do whatever's best for them, whether it's writing, drawing, or speaking, whatever's the best for them, that's how teachers should take any bit of assessment. Yeah, individual assessment is the gold standard if you can achieve that. What's our next question, Dave? It's from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Can a machine be more objective in assessments than a teacher? Thoughts, Aaron? I think it can be. I think it definitely can be, especially for essay writing. If you give the parameters of what you're looking for and or like a rubric of some sort, and a machine can look for that information... And is if they knew the content, then I think it can be more objective because sometimes, you know, I'll look at a work that a student has done and I'm like, I know what they meant. Um, and I'll give them the credit when someone who is totally unbiased wouldn't give them the credit. So I definitely think that machines can be more effective in objective. <laughs> Chris? Well, if you mean by objective, um, narrow, taking into account only <clears throat> parameters that are specified in advance, then yes, uh, a machine can adhere mercilessly to a rubric that says, here's what counts as a correct answer, and only that counts as a correct answer. Um, 
but um, is objectivity a good goal? That's the that's the question. What are, what are we accomplishing by narrowing the uh, boundaries of what counts as a good answer or a correct answer or valuable evidence about uh, learning? That that I think is, it goes beyond the boundaries of any one instrument or one question or one even one opportunity for assessment. It might be that if I'm getting over a bad cold, that the the timing of assessment is not going to show my full capabilities, uh, not because I didn't learn it, but because I'm depleted or distracted by uh, by my health condition or my hunger <clears throat> or whatever the whatever the the situation might be, my anxiety about being tested or assessed. And um, and so the question is, do you, do we want to treat that information that a, that a human judge, uh, it's essentially clinical information, um, can bring to bear? Or do we want to throw that out and say, well, that we, we don't want to count that. In the name of efficiency, we would like this to be done by a machine uh, who is uh, unaware and unswayed by these, uh, what we would define as peripheral factors or irrelevant factors. Um, so yes and no, or be careful what you wish for. Yeah, and, and it's also important to remember that we're all biased and we're the ones who are feeding the machines the data set that they're learning from. Dave, what's our next question? Our next one's from Douglas Carmichael. How do you assess something that is harder to quantify as an example like parenting skills for new parents? Dave? Well, I'm going to stay away from the parenting skills one because I've never assessed parenting, so I'm going to not, not touch that one. But actually, uh, years ago, I learned of a test uh, for creativity, and it was to have an assembled group of people that you want to test for creativity, and you put a brick on the table and say, okay, give me as many things you can do with this brick as possible. And the people who were more creative or had a broader understanding of the various things that make us creative uh, were able to come up with as many as 20 uh, things you could do with this brick, and other people found three things. And that's a form of assessment. It doesn't tell you a lot about the personalities involved or their level of experience and the other asset uh, assessed things that you need to know. But it was a unique way of, of dealing with a very abstract thing that you want to learn about. And challenging your staff every day and giving them problems to solve is a great way to assess the intangibles, the way people take to critical thinking, how they lean on other people for new information, how they explore, how do they do they just go for an answer or do they explore the whole subject and then come up with their own answers, that sort of thing. I've worked with some, some geniuses, some truly genius people in the past, and I had a tough time assessing them because they ran circles around me. And what's our next question? This one's from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. How do you assess trade skills like electrician, plumber, carpenter, etc.? Well, the easy way is to see if the plumbing leaks. Um, one form of assessment for them is the building inspector, but typically it's going to be seeing their actual output. Dave? 
Yeah, there's there's a whole standardized certification because there's a lot of safety considerations and um, regulatory environment that these people operate in. So electricians have to be good enough not to burn your house down or to take shortcuts that later turn out to be flaws. They get assessed all the time, and actually they have to be reassessed even during their career to make sure that their skills align with what the regulations are. I think of airline pilots. They have to have uh, a minimum number of hours of, of flying every year or else they lose their flying license. And what's our last question? It's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you assess decision-making ability? One great way to assess some soft skills is through simulation. So you put the person in a real world scenario, give them, see how they respond, and you can measure that against uh, standing criteria, uh, including a specific rubric. Uh, that's it for our show today. I want to thank everyone so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Uh, panel especially, thanks for joining us and giving your expertise in those education questions for both hours, as well as those panelists who ended up dropping after the first hour. We thank you for your time. Backend crew, we couldn't do it without you. It takes a small village to keep us going, and we greatly appreciate it. And lastly, our producers, you're the ones who drive the show and help us identify what we want to talk about and how we take the conversation. And we couldn't do it without your questions. Next week, we're going to be talking about how to design learning using the pedagogy tool. And our guest, Alan Carrington, and our third time's the charm, he should be here. And we're going to be talking about how to actually design learning, including the assessment stage. And so this is a great lead up into Alan's week next week. We hope you'll join us and stay through the credits to see who all put contributions into our show today. And now my dog's dead silent. Sorry about that. Well, we would have to assess his performance. Strong performance for about an hour and 58 minutes. Yes. That's right. He did very well in the higher percentile.